Welcome to the Iditapod, a podcast about what else? The Iditarod, a production of Alaska Public Media and KNOM Radio in Nome. I'm your host, Josh Edge. Since Mitch Seavey crossed the finish line, more than 30 other mushers have passed beneath the burled arch in Nome. But before we get too far into today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Alaska Pipeline Service Company, celebrating 40 years of fueling the 49th state, is proud to support Iditarod coverage on Alaska Public Media. The top 10 finishers were determined by noon yesterday. The top 20 reached Nome in time for dinner. But there are still plenty of teams out there making their way toward the finish line. Just a reminder that today, yes, today, is our last daily episode. Our trail reporters, Zachariah Hughes from Alaska Public Media and KNOM Radio's Ben Matheson, are wrapping things up out on the trail in the next day or so. But after talking it over with them, we have decided to reconvene once they get back to Anchorage and produce one more I Did a Pod episode next week. So if you like what you've heard so far, be sure to tune in. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or listen on alaskapublic.org. I know from our end, this has been a lot of fun to put together. So if you've been joining us throughout the race, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to either leave a review on iTunes or just email us at iditarod at alaskapublic.org and let us know what you thought of the podcast. Now, back to the good stuff. Since Mitch CV crossed the finish line a couple days ago in record time, teams have continued pouring into Nome, filling out the upper ranks of the 2017 Iditarod Sled Dog Race. This is Mitch Seavey's third title. He ran it in eight days, three hours and 40 minutes, slashing more than seven hours off of the previous record. The Seward Musher says he started the race with an aggressive schedule that his fast team eclipsed. So that's pretty cool. The trail was a little faster and, and smoother than it might have been. But I, I really strongly believe in preparing the dogs to go do what they're going to do, and you shouldn't be really surprised at what happens. At 57 years old, CV is the oldest musher to win the race. He broke the record that he set back in 2013 when he was a 53-year-old Iditarod winner. And I do feel like I'm getting younger, not older. So as long as uh, this is the thing that interests me the most, this is probably what I'll keep doing. But at some point, there may be other things in life when I grow up, but I'm having so much fun with these dogs. Dallas CV and uh, Nicholas Petit arrived in a tight race for second and third, respectively. Norwegian musher Jor Olsum earned fourth place late Tuesday with his team of eight dogs. The fifth place finisher had twice that number of dogs. Jesse Royer did not drop a single team member over the thousand mile race, and she pulled onto Front Street with each of the 16 dogs she drove from the Fairbanks start. I think running the quest beforehand had a lot to do with um, 11 of these finished the quest with me. So I think that had a lot to do with them. The other five I added to those 11 are all like five and six time Iditarod finishers. I have one that just finishes seventh Iditarod with me. So all 16 of these dogs are thousand mile finishers before I started this race. But even then, like the good Lord blessed me with a good bunch of dogs and a lot of luck to go along to get them get here. Following Royer into Nome Wednesday morning were Wade Mars and Ray Reddington Jr. And there was a race out of White Mountain for eighth place. Pete Kaiser left the checkpoint just two minutes ahead of Ali Zirkel. But by the time they were speeding into Nome, Zirkel had overtaken him, as she explained, just as Nome's air raid siren heralded Kaiser's ninth place arrival. Uh, yeah, I didn't catch him until Topcock, when we couldn't see very well. And then I rode his skirts 
almost all the way up Topcock, and then he's then he stopped. <laughs> he was like, "Okay, you can take your turn going." It's hard to drive a dog team into a 40 mile an hour wind. Kaiser's finish was the best of any team from off the road system. When asked why this year's was an exceptionally fast race, Kaiser said it's just where dog mushing's at right now. It's just an evolving sport every year, and you know, there's those guys up front that are pushing the envelope every year and getting better and better and better at this. And you're seeing faster dog teams, and they look more amazing than ever. And yeah, I mean, ninth place in under nine days, it's, it's, it's crazy. So. It's cool to see it evolving so rapidly. And to round out the top 10, veteran musher Paul Gebhardt notched his eighth career top 10 finish. There were a few upsets in the standings as some mushers faded along the coast and others rallied. Four-time champion Jeff King struggled to stay within the top 20 range, and at one point he was worried this year might mark his worst finish ever. But he roared out a unilicleet, passed a bunch of competitors, and ultimately arrived in 11th place under the burled arch in the bulky garment he has deemed the Arctic Moo Moo. I just don't think I have the energy to race the whole race like this. But I knew I did from unicleet. And um, kind of like Tom Brady, I had a strong fourth quarter. But uh, I couldn't have done this without doing what I did earlier. I wouldn't have been able to keep up this pace without taking it pretty easy at the beginning. Rounding out the top 20, King was followed by Ramey Smith, Michelle Phillips, Ryan Reddington, Hans Gott, Ralph Johannesson, and Ken Anderson. 18th place was a bit of a tie as partners John Baker and Catherine Keith from Kotzebue opted to cross the finish line together. The pair was greeted by singers and drummers from St. Lawrence Island, and in 20th position was Linwood Fiedler. Now, let's move on to a listener question. As you'll hear, this was actually sent in a few days ago as Mitch Seavey was closing in on Gnome with a lead that never really seemed to shrink. It's a great question, but we needed a little bit of extra time to figure the answer out ourselves. Hi, Josh, Zach, and Ben. It's Matthew Smith, a former Alaska reporter now working down uh, in Florida. Wishing you hello from the Sunshine State. Really love the Iditapod and really enjoy all of your coverage this year, so keep it up. Uh, My question for you folks is, how did Mitch do it? Over the years, I've heard Dallas CV talk about building the monster, and he points under the Burled Arch and Gnome to rest he took back in Unilicleet or Tanana as pivotal to building up his team and either putting on the brakes when they were too fast or giving them the right amount of rest at the certain time. Um, and I'm just wondering, now that we're getting closer and closer to seeing a full race by Mitch CB this year, how did he do it? What choices did he make that built his monster and what choices can you guys illuminate for us that really gave him an advantage over other mushers thanks again for the iditapod and the excellent iditarod coverage hope you guys can stay warm out there thanks matthew for the really good and and detailed question you know there wasn't one monster run this year there wasn't any huge checkpoint that he skipped there was consistent speed throughout the course that mitch cv was able to achieve but Mitch CV simply had the best team, and he executed a solid race plan without any major hiccups. Zach, there was no, there was no one moment that Mitch took this from another musher. Yeah, a lot of the times people will talk about the mistake that really did their team in, you know, pushing too hard, resting too long, feeding them uh, the wrong thing, or the dogs the wrong thing. 
it doesn't seem like Mitch made any mistakes. I mean, did you see anything on the trail that indicated to you that he deviated from his strategy in anything but a positive way? No, there is no major hiccups like that. In Caltag, Mitch was the first to arrive in Caltag. He was firmly in the driver's seat of the race. He knew that he had the edge after everyone had completed their eight-hour rest, and he knew he had eight extra hours there that he could use to preserve that speed and enter the coastal section with, no doubt, the fastest dog team. He said there that, you know, this isn't really even that hard. And I asked a bit about what he meant, but uh, what Mitch talks about is training. He trains all year round. He trains in race style, and a, a race is simply the execution of the culmination of 12 months of preparations for that. Yeah, when I when I first heard that cut during the during the race from from an interview that you did with him, at first I thought it was like super arrogant, like this isn't even that hard. And it's like it's the Iditarod. Everyone only talks about how hard it is for a long time. But I take what you mean and what Mitch means in the proper context to be when you're training as consistently and as hard as he has, this is just uh, the execution of the same thing that you've been trying out and testing and and building towards. Is is that about right? Absolutely. Uh, here's what Mitch said after the race in Nome. We didn't we didn't stop training from the last I did a ride. We were doing uh, minimum 20 mile runs, multiple runs, all summer long. So when fall came, we were already doing winter type training. And I think we we see now an era where dogs are going to be properly conditioned and prepared for what they go do. And so some of the old rules like don't let them go over nine miles an hour, you know keep the speed down, don't let them lope down hills, that sort of thing, because we were concerned about injuries. I think we've been able to work at least to an extent past that. But as I was running that dog team, all kinds of rules were going out the window. And I was just had my fingers crossed, but I had a lot of confidence in the dogs from all the training that we'd already done. But it's pretty cool because you get places really quick. It's like, oh, I'm already there? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That speed that Mitch trains into his team, that's not something that he's trying out for the first time in I Did Rod 45. That's something that they've done for thousands upon thousands of miles. I think for me, one of the things that really pops about that is that Mitch barely takes any time off, that his dogs are training all summer long when a lot of people maybe aren't putting miles on them or aren't kind of consistently training them. Um, I heard him talking to Stuart Nelson in the dog yard at, at Kayakuk, and he said the dogs get about a three-week rest, and then they're back to 20-mile regimes. I don't know how many other teams are doing that year-round kind of conditioning and training so that they're in a position where the dogs are already really athletic and already really practiced by the time they start doing really you know, build-up runs like you talked about in the fall. One of the more visible parts of Mitch Seavey's victory had to do with how he rotated dogs, how he carried dogs in his sled following the, the rule change that didn't allow dogs to be hauled behind in trailers. I asked Mitch at the ceremonial start if there's any practical way that you can carry dogs in the sled, in the front sled, rather than behind. He said, well, you're going to have to show up to the real start in Fairbanks uh, in the next couple days. Throughout the race, Mitch was carrying dogs. He was rotating out dogs for, it's hard to tell exactly by the tracker, and Mitch won't tell you that schedule. He'll never reveal that schedule, but you can tell in the tracker he's stopping to rotate those dogs. I spoke with Dallas CD in White Mountain as the race was really kind of coming to an end about uh, the way Mitch went about winning this race. Dallas saw this entire hauling dogs technique in the context of his decision to push to Huslia. Much of the other racers rested for their 24-hour break earlier along the trail, but Dallas said that the way that Mitch hauled dogs in the trailer was consistent with that schedule he put together. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost the obvious way to break it down once you know what you're trying to do with a trailer. Or not trailer anymore but what you once you know what you're trying to do carrying dogs and i said that earlier in this this race you know 
now that he's figured that part out, he's going to be a lot harder to beat. And I think this is the first year that he's actually gotten the carrying dogs thing down. He actually has the right setup to do it. He can carry the correct number of dogs. He kind of did it in 16, but still he couldn't carry as many as I could. And it was a little bit, of, just enough of a handicap last year for him. So, um, But you put it all together and see what you get. You know, he's got a pretty awesome setup. He's got a great race. That was Dallas looking back at the race. Dallas knew that he was going to get second place if, if he finished well, but he was out of the running for first place. Uh, Dallas also executed this rotating dogs with the Batmobile large carbon fiber Kevlar sled. So these these two mushers are running parallel, yet still there's enough of a difference in their strategies that uh, those two will be analyzing that uh, to no end over the next coming months. I don't know about you, but I felt like the rotating dogs strategy and uh, its proxy, the debate over whether the trailer ban was appropriate and fair, I thought that was the most contentious thing on the trail this year. I actually went in thinking that the rule change about two-way communicators was going to be this lightning rod for people trying new strategies and doing different things. I barely heard anything other than sort of some novel speculation about who was calling their significant others to tell them that they loved them at different points on the trail. Much more significant, I heard a lot of chatter, not a lot of it on record, about people frustrated about the CV's rotating dog so aggressively and whether that was in keeping with the spirit of the race. I haven't been around long enough to know if every new development is met with the same thing. I don't know if when Boozer started running much smaller, scrappier dogs, people chastised him for betraying the spirit of the race, or when Jeff King started sitting, <laughs> whether people uh, thought that that was against the spirit of the race. I don't know. I, I'm not long enough in the tooth for that. But I will say I think one of the big debates or discussions around dog yards for the next couple months is going to be whether mushers decide to pursue a rotation strategy next race season or whether others are going to opt out, really kind of put their foot down and try and double down and, and maintain that tradition of getting 16 or however many dogs all the way to Nome, most of them running just about all the way. You know, Mitch didn't love doing this. It takes a lot of work. You have to stop to rotate those dogs. You have to stop your team, go walk back and forth, make a few changes. Mitch said that he wants to try doing this with, of course, the same speed that he achieved in this record-setting pace. He wants to try doing that with, without doing that um, in, in a future race. So the, the techniques, we may have seen a first highly successful version of that this year, but uh, that, that's still pioneering new ground in terms of 1,000-mile dog racing. Yeah, and it's interesting because the top two teams are, you know, very visibly rotating relatively large numbers of dogs, you know, four, as many as five dogs at a time. But not that far down the leaderboard, Jessie Royer showed up in uh, in Nome with 16 dogs on the line. You know, I don't think she was rotating many of them, and she finished really strong in the race with good-looking dogs. So, you know, who knows if this is just kind of like an avant-garde technique right at the very top and whether it's going to become, you know, the thing, the strategy that really puts people over the edge or if we're just kind of grasping at straws to try and make sense of just some phenomenal mushers. And throughout the race, CVs tend to take things more conservative and then get out to the coast where they've banked that extra rest and they can really make a big, steep run up the coast. But both Dallas and Mitch and other top mushers told me that racing starts well before the coast. Racing starts the very first day. Even if you're being conservative, if you fall behind, you can't always make that up. Mitch said that last year, Dallas got in front of him on the on the first run, and no matter what Mitch could do, he could never quite get that back. There's never quite enough rest or never quite enough speed to do that. So Mitch Seavey in this race had to be close enough to the front that when he f executed his full race plan, 
that he was never just that one half step behind that he couldn't get. So he had to stay close in position to, to pull that off. Mitch ran f- close to the front going forward. He wasn't the first guy to several of these first checkpoints. But by the time they got to Ruby, he was always within a couple hours. He got there a bit behind Wade Mars and Dallas Seavey. Those two mushers declared their eight and their 24, and they ended up staying 24 hours there. Mitch said, these dogs don't need a 24. So that was one of his first departures where those two guys are sitting pretty, sitting early. That's where Mitch did his 24 back in 2015. But that was one place where he got separation, made that march to Galena, and all the way up 80-plus miles to Huslia to do that. Without fail, everyone was impressed with the absolute speed of Mitch Seavey's team. On the coast, he was the fastest from Unilcleet to Shaktulik. He was the fastest from Elam to White Mountain. And, you know, over thousands of miles of training, like we've talked, Mitch has found the exact speed that he thinks allows for the fastest sustainable race with uh, an appropriate amount of rest. You know, this has taken decades, but uh, Mitch Seavey thinks that he's got it dialed in. And he talked about that after he finished the race. I didn't go out on the race and say, gee, I think I'll try this. I knew they could do this before we started doing it and uh, as she also knows we we do long training series uh, simulated racing and as you do the simulated racing and hold the dogs at a certain speed you can then see what happens do they get tired do they need more rest mitch refers to she in that question and that was a question by dallas evie's wife jen that uh, mitch was responding to in a in a public setting when i spoke with dallas evie in white mountain after dallas's race was basically basically over uh, Dallas was just hugely impressed with his father's speed uh, going up the coast and going from Unilcleet to Shaktulik. Last year, both he and I did it in just under five hours, which is a really fast run time from Unilcleet to Shaktulik. Uh, it's a little bit easier to do it in under five hours if you don't stop and shack because your team's already warmed up when you hit the trail. This year, I did that run in under five hours, which is only you know, the second time I've been able to do it. I think my dad, myself, and Doug Swingley are about the only people that have ever raced raced competitively and done that run in under five. My dad did it in like 4.36 or something. It's just, we're talking about 10 miles an hour going up mountains. It's it's insane. So, yeah, it's, it's been truly impressive what that team's doing. Dallas Seavey came off his run into White Mountain. He said he was nodding off. He was tired. But um, you see that analytical mind that Dallas Seavey applies to this. Mitch doesn't go as much into the numbers, but... Dallas Seavey knows exactly how fast Mitch Mitch Seavey was going on his run up the coast. Ben, can I ask you something? Yes. You have a bit of a quantitative mind yourself. Do you think that's a little bit of a compliment to not one, but two uh, analytically minded Seaveys being at the top of the pack? I mean, is it fun for you kind of breaking down uh, the numbers and the run times for these guys that are constantly breaking them down themselves and building strategy around it? I love the fact that I can approach either CV and describe a bit about their strategy and try to tap into those gears that have been turning for, you know, seven or eight or nine hours along the course of one of these runs. I really enjoy uh, the fact that they will show that sometimes, not all the time, and they're not going to give you the exact analytical secrets, but you know that these race plans are, are developed months and months in advance and that there's a lot of trial and error that goes into these, these minor decisions. Are you going to talk about Mitch's uh, marathon strategy later on? Which brings us to our physical fitness portion of this race. Mitch Seavey is 57 years old. He's won the Iditarod in record time. While the dogs are doing the hard work, there's also the musher, of course, that's taking care of them at multiple stops, the shuffling back and forth, moving dogs, laying down straw, caring caring for these dogs, running up hills, kicking, using the ski pole. Mitch Seavey, while he 
says that he doesn't have the athleticism that 30-year-old Dallas does, Mitch Seavey is in extremely good shape. This past summer, he actually did a bit of uh, competitive running, which he talked about uh, after the race. I did train for and run a half marathon last summer, which is the first, that's the longest run I've ever done in my life. So um, I think that sort of thing helps, but I think more of it's mental. I think I don't think of myself as, as older, and I think that I'm as much looking forward to the next adventure and the next race and the next season as looking back. I, I don't do a lot of recollecting and, and uh, you know, spinning yarns. I talk about what I'm going to do next and how we're going to improve and keep moving forward. I'm blessed to be physically in good shape, no illness, not too many body parts missing, and I don't see any reason to change it. Um, I want to just go wide open until I hit the brick wall. Uh, that uh, body parts missing thing was a reference to uh, part of Mitch's finger that I believe was chopped off when a knife malfunctioned uh, some years ago. A lot of mushers are missing body parts, especially fingers. So that's kind of a strange metaphor to use sometimes. I just want to contrast Mitch's answer with another through line that came up this race, and that was with Jeff King, who had a, there's a really beautiful piece about him written by Tegan Hanlon of the Alaska Dispatch News, uh, I believe from the Nolato checkpoint, where Jeff uh, was sort of resigned at that point to maybe his worst finish ever. He was not doing great in the leaderboards and kind of talked about, you know, I just don't have the energy and the drive to race this way anymore. Jeff's only four years older than Mitch, and it was he was just sort of reflecting on the twilight of, of his era and, you know, potentially not doing uh, racing competitively anymore. Now, that said, he did that, and then he shot past all these people on the coast and ultimately finished 11th, which is not only respectable but admirable. So uh, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, what, a, what a contrast to Mitch C.V. <laughs> coming out and saying, not only do I feel great, but I, I plan on feeling greater. And Mitch C.V. didn't just jog this half marathon. He didn't just finish it. He placed 7th out of 25 in his age group. He was 127th out of more than 600 in this race. Ultimately, a, a one-hour, 55-minute half marathon. That's uh, an 8.47 pace. I pulled out a little bit of my C.V. tricks and uh, analyzed his stats for this, this half marathon. You're just trolling Mitch C.V.'s running history. For full disclosure, I was completing um, a race. Uh, Dallas CV completed the marathon, so did I. And I saw Mitch CV do this. So after he completed that half marathon, of course, I looked up how Mitch CV did in this race. Did you beat Dallas? I did not beat Dallas. When you were going through this, I saw you. You got really exuberant over not just where Mitch placed, but how he ran his race and what his speeds were doing. Mitch ran negative splits in his half marathon. That is to say, he ran faster as the race went on. I hate to make the connection so clear, but if you're running a dog team, you want to be the fastest at the end, the fastest on the coast. That's how Mitch C.V. built his half marathon schedule, and that's how he did it. Not only are you a nerd, you're an athletic nerd. There's a whole world of quantitative sports that is just kind of now starting to hit mushing, so it's a brand new era. Are we going to get to mushing sabermetrics in 2018? Exactly. I, I guess the big takeaway is Mitch, <laughs> Mitch won because Mitch was the best this year. Is that right? It comes down to having the best dog team, and people have said throughout the course of this race, Mitch CV has the best dog team. When you have a dog driver who can execute a plan tailored to that specific dog team, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a record-setting pace. Well, and that's what I heard Dallas say up and down the trail multiple times, almost to the point of frustration, was he was running his dogs his way. People would ask if he was going to try and catch Mitch, and I think that Dallas is a little bit cagey with a lot of his answers, but what he would say is, I'm running this dog team uh, the best that they can run. And that's what Mitch did, too. He just had a better dog team, is what it sounds like. And it's no surprise. Mitch has finished second the past two years. 
if Dallas CV would have zigged instead of zagged, uh, you could have seen Mitch CV win the past two years. He's been right there doing the same solid execution of the race. Uh, this time he came out on top. Did he ever look tired to you? And I don't mean just like, oh, you know, kind of fatigued, but I mean like real tired, like red, swollen, can't string a sentence together. You were at the front of the pack. You were much more, you saw Mitch a lot more than I did. Yeah. Um, the last time I saw him was in Kayakuk and he looked great. He looked like he was a little short on sleep, a little groggy, but he was totally with it, looked really calm, looked confident. I think at that point he knew he was in the driver's seat. How did he look in White Mountain? In White Mountain, he arrived knowing that he had the fastest team and knowing that he basically had the race sewn up. He did, when we sat down to interview him in the pitch darkness on the Fish River, he did sit down on his seat and he was a little bit a little bit tired, but I think he was getting actually a little bit reflective. While he was heating up water, icy water that was pulled from a hole in the Fish River, it took a little bit of time and gave us a bit of a longer time to chat with him. His race was was coming to an end. He said that he was able to bank more rest for himself. He took that little bit of extra time to make sure he got some sleep. And on his way up the coast, he had the luxury of having enough of a lead that he could stop and rest his team to maintain that speed and to give him a bit more buffer, a bit more insurance on those those final runs. That gave him extra rest. Mitch Seavey was a well-rested musher coming up the coast and coming into Nome with the victory. So at one point, Wade Mars looked like he was pretty competitive, I think, out in Ruby. Why didn't Wade win? Wade said that he had seven two-year-olds on his team. Several had run before, but Wade Mars did not have the bulletproof, battle-tested team that the Seavies had this year. All of these mushers put together an extremely aggressive schedule. They all put together schedules that are basically breaking past records because they know that the CVs or Jeff King or whoever is going to pull off a schedule that matches or beats the record. Wade Mars was not able to keep that speed as the race progressed. He was looking right there at the front in Ruby, but um, after that, he just wasn't able to sustain that and ended up having to play a little bit of defense uh, going up the coast. Uh, Nick Nicholas Petit also had a lot of two-year-olds, a lot of younger dogs on his team, if I'm remembering correctly. And and I believe your awesome also had, had quite a young team. And to me, that's interesting because it means next year is going to be even more exciting. Especially with Nick Petit. He, he knows that he's got this young team that's coming together and did incredible things in mid-distance races. And he knows that with another Iditarod under the belt, that uh, he knows what they can do. He, t- he, takes, he takes them on long runs, on fast runs, and he's really getting a sense of what that team can do. I think that's about it. I think that's a, that's a pretty comprehensive explanation. Thanks, Matthew, for the extremely informed and detailed question. I know you're one of the more analytical and strategic minds uh, watching this race from Alaska typically, but from, from South Florida this year. And thank you, Matthew Smith, for also being my boss at one point in time and being really good at it. We've got one last thing for you today. We'll call it Musings by Zach. Earlier this week, Zach posted a picture on Twitter of some really tasty-looking food a mushroom dropped at a checkpoint. So I asked a very, very sleep-deprived Zach what else mushers dropped. I think he kind of forgot about the question for a while. Then the night before last, I saw that this was waiting for me. It's sort of an interesting question about what mushers eat and particularly what kinds of weird things they eat. A lot of what they pack or send out to the checkpoints is food for themselves. And these are things that they're thinking about and preparing in advance by, I mean, almost a month because drop bags happen in mid-February 
And here we are in mid-March, and these guys are still sort of opening up vacuum-sealed packages of food, microwaving it, and eating it for sustenance. Some of the weirder stuff I've seen, guacamole, about the size of a, a child's fist or a brick of goat cheese, solid guacamole, a lot of pizza, all kinds of pizza, I think because it's so easy to microwave and eat really quickly and has lots of delicious fatty cheese, a lot of soups, all kinds of soups. In the Caltag checkpoint, somebody gave me a pouch of macaroni and cheese with ham in it that hadn't been eaten, Uh, so I ate that. Shrimp. John Baker had a ziplocked bag with several shrimp in it, pats of butter, uh, also vacuum sealed in so that they could just be defrosted and uh, buttered up. Jeff King had a whole meal from 229 Parks, which is a fancy restaurant on the Parks Highway. In fact, right across the highway from where he lives at mile marker 229 on the Parks Highway. And uh, the owner there gave him and Kristen Bacon each a meal, so a gourmet meal. I don't know what was in it. Jeff was eating it a second ago. Some kind of meaty soup with asparagus, garlic bread, and I believe uh, chocolate dessert things. It looked good. He didn't finish it, but he put his name on it and put it in a bowl and hit it so that nobody else would take it. A lot of Gatorade. Lots and lots of Gatorade for people to uh, drink when they're at the checkpoints. Some pasta with meat sauce in it. I feel like I see that a lot. Spaghetti and meatballs kind of weird i mean it's in this little frozen pouch and the way you defrost a lot of this stuff is there's usually a a bucket of hot water that's on top of a stove or something and you dump it in there and warm it up to defrost it and then maybe chuck it in the microwave or just cut off the plastic top and eat it out of a little pouch but just to reiterate a lot of this food is a month old a lot of the time there's food at the checkpoints that people from the community have brought in So like mousse soups or pasta or uh, bacon and eggs in the morning, stuff like that. But the mushers are pretty much always prepared in case that's not there or if they're keeping on a dietary regime. And a funny thing that happens in White Mountain, the last real checkpoint before Nome, is that people are just shedding everything that they don't want to eat or can't eat or can't finish. So there's not too many mushers here, but there's already a box of cast off food in the corner. All right, for whatever reporter's notebook, question, random musing on the river, that's it. Zach out. All right, folks, that's all we've got for you today. As always, thanks to Alaska Public Media's Zachariah Hughes and to KNOM Radio's Ben Matheson for all of their hard work and long hours out on the trail this year. And thanks so much to all of you who've been joining us for our semi-coherent discussions about the race and to those of you who took the time to send questions in. As I mentioned earlier, this is the last of our daily episodes, but don't worry, you're not quite rid of us yet. Zach, Ben, and I will meet up next week for one last episode, wrapping up our coverage of the 2017 Iditarod. So if you like what you've heard, be sure to tune in. To make that easier, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can listen on alaskapublic.org. Also, if you have been joining us throughout the race, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to either leave a review on iTunes or just email us at iditarod at alaskapublic.org and let us know what you thought about the podcast. 
Our theme music is by the band Sassafras, and I'm Josh Edge. Goodbye. I'm not really sure if this is a reporter's notebook or if there is a question about it or if Josh just G-chatted me one day and asked about it and put it in the back of my head until now.